process called the Vedic motivation. So as the Abbey community is deciding to build Buddha Hall this year, if we can get all the conditions to come together, it's an incredible opportunity to create great merit. And it will stretch the community. We'll all have to uh, go a few steps further because there will be a lot going on this year. But we remember that we're building the Buddha Hall so that sentient beings have a place to come and learn the teachings, reflect on them, meditate on them, gain realizations. And while it's an incredible opportunity to create that merit, especially if we do it with the bodhicitta motivation. What's even more incredible is to actually generate bodhicitta in our hearts and minds. And that uh, is the deepest way to be a benefit to sentient beings. Because if we can gain realizations, then our speech becomes more powerful. We can really uh, be an example of the Dharma for others and lead them on the path. So that takes a lot of work on our part, work that in many ways is much harder than building a Buddha hall. And it will definitely take longer but it's so worthwhile because we can see uh, in our own lives the benefit that one person with compassion can have on quite a number of people. And so one person with bodhicitta has even more of an effect. So that's generate that motivation for the good of the world. So, we're still in the chapter on conscientiousness, but I don't know about you, I really like going through these verses quite slowly, because uh, then when you sit down to meditate on them, you have a lot to meditate on, you know, because you've heard a really full uh, kind of explanation of them and with examples and everything. And there's, uh, I can't remember if it was one time or two times, uh, where I did retreat just on this text, you know. 
on my sessions, I I did some white Tara practice or something, and then most of my session was meditating on these verses, and it was a lovely retreat, yeah, because this this book, um, I don't know, it really speaks to my heart. So um, where we got up to last time, we were talking about how the real enemy uh, is not external beings. The real enemy are the afflictions in our mind and especially the self-centered thought and the self-grasping ignorance. And, um, you know, that other living beings, the worst harm they can ever do to us is to kill us. But when you think that we've died Limit, you know, uncountable number of times in samsara, dying and re- being reborn, you know, is is uh, it's not a new experience. You know, when we come in and it's just from our worldly viewpoint, it's like, oh, the worst they could do is kill me. Well, that's really bad. Ah. But then when you think, you know, well, we've died countless times before and we've been killed countless times before and we always take another rebirth, then it's like, okay, you know, it's about time that I get used to this and know how to prepare for my death and and not get so freaked out by it, you know, because it's been happening for a while. Um and then, so that's the worst other living beings can do uh, for us, to us. Um, but they can't send us to a lower rebirth. They can, you know, they can say go to hell many times, but that doesn't make us be reborn there. What makes us be reborn in the hell realms uh, are the afflictions, the self-centeredness, the ego, gra- the eye grasping. Okay, so to really make very clear in our mind. And this chapter and the beginning of the next chapter, the underlying point is it all depends on your mind. So get over the habit of blaming others for your problems and get over the habit of thinking that happiness lies in external objects or situations or people. And that's one of the primary things that we have to get through our thick skulls in order to be a Dharma practitioner. Yeah, And you can often see many people who have been practicing, in quotes, Dharma for many years, who still get very upset you know, or very greedy about external things. And that's because they've missed this point. Or they heard the point, but they didn't sit and really meditate on it. They didn't sit and really look at their own life and see that, yeah, you know, where has my, where have my problems come from? Yeah. It's all from this mind, not necessarily in this lifetime. In previous lifetimes, afflictions overpowered our mind. 
we created negative karma. That karma ripens in this lifetime, but it, the karma still originates from the mind. You know, and to, to you know, be responsible in that way, not blaming ourselves, not saying I deserve to suffer because nobody deserves to suffer. Yeah, but just saying. I had a role in this, yeah, which means that I can change it. If we don't have a role in it, if our misery is due to the force of some uh, God or some divine being or something else, you know, and it's their will, then it's what can we do about it? It's in the hands of somebody else. Yeah, that we can't even, you know, file a complaint against. (laughs) So, um, you know, that leaves us really nowhere. Yeah. So responsibility, you know, many, somebody once said, I want to look responsible but not be responsible. Yeah, Um, but when we assume the responsibility, then it means we can do something to change it. Yeah, and I always respected um, Obama when he said, the buck stops here. Yeah, because that's hard to say. And I think Biden said something similar to that recently, too. You know, it's hard to say that, but it's, it's like owning that we have responsibility and we can change the situation or at least do our part in changing it. And then to to see other sentient beings are not threats. Yeah, they're kind sentient beings. Yes, sometimes they do things that are stupid, that are harmful, that we suffer from, but if we look broadly over previous and future lifetimes, and even this lifetime, those very same people, the same mind streams, have also been incredibly kind to us. Yeah, And our life depends on them. And the fact that we've lived until however old we are right now indicates that others have been kind, because if they hadn't, we would not have survived. Yeah, And this is not only when we were infants, people taking care of us, but even now, if people didn't grow the food we eat and make the clothes we have and build the buildings we live in and construct the roads that we drive on and do every all the other things that our totally interdependent society relies on, I mean, we wouldn't have the life we have. Yeah, we'd all be out, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure what we would eat right now. (laughs) You know, well, there's a lot of snow, but there's not much around to eat. Yeah, and if you're cold, not much around to to cover yourself with. Okay, so... um, you know, to, to really, do, you know, 
keep those two things in mind, the kindness of others and that the problems come from the afflictive mind. The afflictive mind is not who we are. So don't fall to the extreme of, oh yes, it all comes from the afflictive mind and I'm so bad because I have afflictions. That is the wrong conclusion, okay? You try and find a place in the Buddha's teaching where the Buddha says you're a bad person, okay? I challenge you to find that. So when you're sitting there and telling yourself, I'm a bad person and I'm hopeless, yeah, it is not because the Buddha taught that. Yeah, that's coming again from your own ridiculous fake news that you tell yourself. Okay, so just be aware of that. Yeah. That's really an important thing to, you know, a third important thing to be aware of, you know. Because what I've observed is this thing of blaming ourselves is one of the biggest hindrances at least people in the Western culture have, I think. Because it completely keeps you trapped in not doing anything. Because you think you're such a terrible person, you can't. So you don't try. Yeah, or you try and then you quit, or whatever you know it is. So to to really, you know, stop that mind that says I'm poor quality goods and I can't do anything and I have so many hindrances more than everybody else. Oh. You think you have hindrances? Let me tell you mine. Oh, they're so huge. Yeah. What? You're, you're living in a, as a refugee in Syria in a tent with no food? Yeah. Or you're separated from your parents at the U.S. border when you're a child? And who do you turn to for security and love? Yeah. So, you know, the 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 self-pity mind is Yeah, it's a powerful one, but it really is um it wastes so much time and energy. Yeah. So, and we uh, had finished verse 33, but I want to go through it again. Okay, so chapter 4, verse 33. Uh, Shandideva says, If I agreeably honor and entrust myself to others, they will bring me benefit and happiness. But if I entrust myself to these disturbing conceptions, in the future they will bring only misery and harm. So if we're a pleasant person and we treat others well, they will usually treat us well. Not always, because remember, they have afflictions, and their afflictions 
create their, you know, their own sob story and their own, you know, projections on us. So yes, that happens. But in general, in society, if we treat others well, they will treat others well. Uh, they will treat us well. And if we treat others poorly, not in general will they treat us poorly, but definitely they will treat us poorly. Okay, that one, sure. You know, nobody turns around after we harm them and says, thank you so much, you're so kind. Gee, they should because we're telling them that for their own benefit, right? Yeah, but they don't thank us when we point out their faults and scream at them because they didn't do what we wanted them to do. Okay, so, you know, to really remember that sentient beings um, will bring us happiness when we treat them well. Afflictions will never bring us happiness, even when we treat them well. So when attachment comes in your mind and you say, oh, my dear friend of attachment, I like you because when I get what I'm attached to, then I feel good. Okay, and I want to feel good, so I like my attachment. And you invite attachment in your mind. That is never going to bring you happiness because you get one thing that you want and it doesn't satisfy you, so you want another one and another one and another one. Okay? If when we invite anger and resentment and grudge-holding into our minds, oh my goodness, we're upset for a long time, and then we say and do things that make other people upset. Yeah. It's amazing. And uh, so inviting anger in our mind, saying, anger, you're my friend, you make me feel powerful. Yeah, otherwise I don't feel powerful. Yeah, suspicion, you're welcome in my mind because suspicion will help me protect myself from all these evil sentient beings that are ready to discriminate against me and oppress me and take away my happiness. So we invite suspicion and, and anger into our mind. And then we invite their friend, revenge. Yeah? Welcome, revenge, come in. You're going to help me stand up for my rights. Yeah? And then we do something to harm somebody else. Okay. So I'm not saying the antidote is to be the world's doormat. I'm not saying that. And there definitely is injustice. But there's one way of bringing up injustice where we are based on afflictions and projections and so on. There's another way of bringing up injustice where we can actually communicate with another person. And that's what we need to aim for. Okay.
Because if we don't aim for actual communication, then we might as well get mad at a at a pillow. And, and that that's what they did when, you know, I was in college. When you got mad, when we had encounter groups. Remember encounter groups? Yeah? So, um, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> do I remember encounter groups? Oh. Um, and, you know, so you were supposed to tell somebody what you really felt about them, and they were supposed to really take it in, and, of course, so many people cried and blah, blah, blah. But, you know... It, it and then you know the solution was you were upset you were angry so you were supposed to go scream in a field or punch a punching bag or you know sit and wail you know what was that Cathar- catharsis yeah remember you were supposed to cry catharsize yourself with crying and sobbing and hysteria and and then the group is going to support you while you're like that <laughs> yeah I'm sure glad accounting groups went out of style <laughs> so um, I mean, I was in, there. There were some benefits, but there was a lot of hurt. And anyway, um, you know, it, it, saying it to a wall, screaming at a wall, or beating a pillow or a punching bag—at least you you're not hurting other another sentient being and taking it out on another sentient. You know, and especially what's happening now is people releasing their anger anonymously by making death threats and so on and ruining people's reputations online, making false accusations. Somebody makes one small mistake and then their name and email and address is all over the internet so that other people go and bother them. My goodness, you know, and you do it all anonymously, and that's supposed to make you feel good. Yeah, but look at the turbulence it causes in society. Yeah, and if you're ever the victim of that, it's really horrible. Yeah, so, you know, let's certainly not do that kind of thing to other people because it doesn't make them change. Yeah, giving somebody death threats does not make them agree with you. (laughs) Yeah, it makes them afraid. Yeah, but what good does their fear do you? Yeah, we take revenge on somebody. What good does revenge do for us? Well, we sit there and go, well, I got them good where it hurt. So, how's that benefit you? Does it protect you from illness? 
Does it make you have friends? Does it give you a long life? Does it give you a better rebirth? What good does it do for you when you take revenge? Well, I feel powerful then. Yeah, you feel so powerful that you won't even put your name when you troll someone. That's how powerful you feel. That you're scared yourself to say who you are. Yeah. So let's let's look for other ways to solve disagreements. Yeah. Okay. So verse 34. While in cyclic existence, how can I be joyful and unafraid if in my heart I readily prepare a place for this incessant enemy of long duration, the sole cause for the increase of all that harms me? Okay. So if in my life what I'm doing is readily preparing a place and inviting in all my afflictions who are the incessant enemy of long duration that have been with me since beginningless time and that are the sole cause of all the harm and unhappiness I receive. If I do that, how can I be joyful and unafraid even while in cyclic existence. Yeah. When I'm doing things that will actually result in my own unhappiness. Thinking that when I'm greedy and jealous and lazy and resentful and, and so on, that uh, I'm creating the cause for happiness. Yeah. And I think the former president is a good example of that. Yeah. This is one extremely unhappy person who thought that lying and blaming and getting people riled up would bring him happiness. Yeah. And he's quite unhappy because if he were happy, he wouldn't need to do all that stuff. You know, a happy person does not go around harming people deliberately. Yeah, they have better things to do with their time, like be happy. <laughs> yeah. When you go around harming others, you're miserable, aren't you? Yeah? When you're in a bad mood and somebody said something that you really don't like and you've got to stand up and put them in their place, are you a happy camper? Okay, verse 35. And how shall I ever have happiness if in a net of attachment within my mind there dwell the guardians of the prison of cyclic existence, those disturbing conceptions that become my butchers and tormentors in hell. Okay, 
So how shall I ever have happiness if in my own mind, in all the attachment and clinging and craving in my mind, yeah, there dwell the guardians of the prison of cyclic existence. Who are the guardians of the prison? Our afflictions. Yeah. So you have attachment, and then from attachment come most of our other afflictions. It usually goes from ignorance or confusion to attachment, and then to anger and and the other afflictions. That's the evolution, how it usually is. Okay? And so those um, afflictions and distorted conceptions, uh, they are the things that create the karma that produce the butchers and tormentors in the hell realm. Or, even if it's not in the hell realm, whoever torments you in this life. Yeah. And then, you know, we're made unhappy, and then we create more of the above by getting angry again. Yeah. So in a previous life, I did something. Now I'm being harmed. What do I do? I create more afflictions. Yeah, which are going to, you know, which create the karma. I do the actions which bring, uh, you know, more pain and suffering in future lives. So it's very important, again, to think, why is it called cyclic existence? Yeah. And to think about the 12 links and to think about this whole cycle, you know, of afflictions create karma, create misery, from which we generate more afflictions and create more karma and have more misery. And then again, so these three groups, afflictions, karma, suffering, or dukkha. Yeah. And how they are totally entangled. Okay, verse 36. Therefore, as long as this enemy is not slain with certainty before my very eyes, I shall never give up exerting myself towards that end. Having become angry at someone who caused only slight and sharp, short-lived harm, self-important people will not sleep until their enemy is overcome. Okay, so the first two lines, yeah, Shantideva is leading us in making a very strong determination as long as the enemy of my distorted conceptions and afflictive mental states is not slain by the sword of wisdom, yeah, with certainty, not just a little bit on one day, yeah, um, I shall never uh, give up exerting myself to go in that direction. So, you know, this is what I have a determination to do. And it's going to take a long time. Yeah. And nobody's expecting me to do it by 
you know, next Wednesday. Yeah. I may expect myself to do it by next Wednesday. And that's our own folly that makes us miserable. Yeah. So it's going to take a while, but I think the important thing is to rejoice that at least now we know who the actual, the origin of the actual harm we're experiencing. You know, now we can see it clearly. We know what to do, and there's a clear path of antidotes that will, that we can learn and practice that will lead us in that direction. Yeah, and so to rejoice at that and feel happy about that instead of, oh, I have so many defilements and it's going to take three countless great eons. And they say the Tantra is fast, but I can't even understand that. (laughs) And on and on, you know. Okay, so that's the first two lines. Then the second two lines, he's leading us into kind of a whole other way of thinking, which is, yeah, to look at the way ordinary people handle conflict and what they will endure to win the conflict, what they will endure to be right, and how courageous and brave they are to do that, and saying, well, we can just be as courageous and as brave to destroy the actual enemy that unlike the enemy that other people are trying to destroy, which is external, ours is an internal enemy. Theirs is too, they just don't realize it. But, you know, we're trying to destroy the inner enemy. Yeah. And external enemies, we're coming to that. External enemies, you know, like ISIS. We kind of, you know, kind of somewhat did did away with ISIS, you know, at least enough to declare, well, we won. But ISIS is regrouping. Yeah? And it'll come back. With worldly enemies, I mean, that's what happens. You may defeat them, they regroup, and they come back. Yeah. With these, with the enemy of the afflictions, once we're able to cut them off with the realization of emptiness, they're, they're completely gone. There's no way for them to come back. Okay. So, having become angry at someone who caused only slight and short-lived harm. Okay. People cause us so much slight and short-lived harm that we think is incredibly painful and long-lasting. Okay. Like, they didn't say good morning to me. Yeah. I mean, look at the things we get mad at and upset over. Yeah. You're asking me to vacuum the carpet again. That's going to cause me incredible, overwhelming suffering. 
Not so much because of the carpet, but because you're always picking on me. And you expect me to just do whatever you say. You think I'm nothing, but I'm not nothing. I'm somebody. Don't you dare ask me to vacuum when it's not my turn. So who's causing the suffering at that time? The person who said, would you please vacuum the floor? Six words. Takes less than 15 seconds to say. How long do we suffer because of that? Because we get Ego upset. Our ego's been wounded. Our, our self-confidence has been challenged. Yeah. We are under the oppressive thumb of somebody who doesn't respect me, who wants to pick on me and is always getting at me. And it's unfair. And then we ruminate. They did this, they did this. Oh, I just remembered. Ten years ago, they did that to me, too. Yeah. And on and on and on. And we build our court case. And then we go back to them later, and we deliver our court case. And they're sitting there going, what did I do? You know, I just asked you to vacuum, and I even said, please. Yeah, what's happening? Okay. So we've all been on the side of being blamed for things we didn't do. But have we ever been on the side of blaming people for things they didn't mean or do? Never. Never. We would never do that. So it's interesting that the world is full of people who are blamed for things they didn't do. But there's no blamers in the universe. Because we don't do it. We never speak harshly or exaggerate to other people or you know, get defensive for no reason. We never do that. So, and nobody else we ask would do that. I mean, you look at the former president, and he says he is the most discriminated against president in the whole history of the country. No president has ever been treated as rudely, as inconsiderately, as hostily as he has been. This is what he says. Listen to what he says. You know, he has the poor me thing going. And all these people, I try so much to do what's good for the country. And then these people file court suits against me. And I didn't do anything wrong. And they make accusations that I sexually assaulted them. I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. That, what was that tape called? The, um, there was a name for the tape. 
What? Oh, Access Hollywood tape. That was somebody else's voice on the Access Hollywood tape. It was not me. I was not in that bus with uh, whoever it was, somebody Bush, you know. I was not in that bus. It was not me who said that. Yeah, they're lying again. Okay? So, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah. I think I told you about my friend who... uh, as a mediator, and I went with him one time because I'm interested in mediation. Um, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's just cut it out right now. But, um, you know, I am interested in mediation some, sometimes. Anyway, he, he was a really good mediator uh, instructor. And, uh, and I went and uh, for his workshop. And, you know, and he asked the people, you know, How many of you, when you're in conflict, really try to communicate? Yeah? And they all raise their hand, you know. Yes, we really try and communicate with the other person. And he said, how many of you feel that the person you're in conflict with isn't even trying to communicate? And they all raise their hand. And he said, it's so interesting. I always have the cooperative people in my seminars. I never have the people who don't want to communicate come to my seminars. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So self-important people will not sleep until their external enemy is overcome. Okay? So you stay up all night planning how to get your revenge. And not only planning it, tweeting it. Yeah? So you lose sleep because before you go to sleep, you're thinking and thinking and thinking. And that's why you can't fall asleep because you're thinking of what you're going to do to retaliate. Because you're a self-important person and nobody should ever treat us that way. So you're thinking how to retaliate. Then maybe you sleep a little bit. Then you get up early. Now I'm going to tweet. Yeah? And get my revenge. And then you tweet. Sometimes, what, like 30 tweets in one day? I don't know. 30 tweets an hour? (laughs) Then you know what you're doing all day. Okay. So self-important people will not sleep until their enemy is overcome because they are going to be victorious. Okay. Verse 37. And if while engaged in a violent battle, the vigorous desire to conquer those whose disturbing conceptions will naturally bring them suffering at death, men disregard the pain of being pierced by spears and arrows and will not withdraw until the day is won. So, you know, people on a battlefield, it's a violent battle. 
and that you have a strong desire to conquer uh, the enemy. Okay. And so even the enemy attacks you and you get wounded and pierced and horrible things happen to you in, in battle. You still don't withdraw. You stay in there and fight until you win. Yeah. Or until they kill you. But, you know, you want to win so bad, you stay there. And th this is the way it, you're trained in the military. Yeah. If you do an operation and, you know, your, your platoon or whatever gets ravaged, yeah, you, you don't give up. You go, go back in and you try and do your best. Or, um, I was reading one, one story, um, about somebody in, in Vietnam. He was a, a captain maybe, or, or a sergeant, or I don't know. I can't keep all those things uh, straight. I don't know which one's higher and which one's lower. Um, but anyway, his group went in and they decimated a, a village, a, a Vietnamese village, um, where they thought the Viet Cong was. And then they, you know, did their, they came back and he was congratulating his men on, you know, a job well done. And then the Viet Cong came and did a surprise attack on his, on them. Okay. And they were completely flummoxed. It's because they thought it was all over. And now they're getting attacked. And so many people in the platoon were killed. And even the, or, or injured. Many of them were injured. They were out in the, in the open field, in the, yeah, in the grass, and they were injured. And this one guy, the leader, he went out under enemy gunfire and brought back these people who were injured. Yeah, he was not giving up, even at the risk of his own life. And he got injured in the process of it, too. Okay. So that's a good example. There's more to the story, which I'll tell you in a minute. But that's a good example of, you know, even though he was injured himself, I mean, he cared about the other people and he wanted to protect his men, but also there was no way he was going to give up, you know, and because he thought, he said he thought, I'm going to die anyway, so I'm going to go out there and bring these guys in. As it turned out, all of them lived, you know. And he was, um, uh, you know, word got through to the authorities of what, what he had done, and he was nominated for some really big high award in the military. Again, I don't know the names of these things. Um, please excuse me for my ignorance. Uh, and uh, and then they lost the military lost the papers. And then somebody applied again for him. And again, nothing happened. He never got his very it was some very high award. And he was African American. 
So to this day, he's now like, I think, 80-something. The guys in his platoon are still trying to get him to get that award. Okay. Somebody asked him when they interviewed him for this article if there was uh, anything that... What was exactly was the question? Anything where he felt he was not treated fairly? And he paused, and he sat for a while. And then he told the interviewer, interviewer, no, I can't think of anything. Okay. So he refused to, his mind refused to blow this thing up. Yeah. And he sincerely felt that way. He he wasn't like he was holding it in his heart. You know, all those years of like, I did this brave thing and they were supposed to acknowledge me and they didn't and they never gave a reason why, but I know why. He didn't torment himself with that. And other people are sticking up for him now. Yeah. So what I'm trying to get across is, you know, in the heat of battle, you know, people, you have a lot of adrenaline going and you are not going to give up. Okay. Um, How many of you, when you have a a quarrel with somebody, especially somebody you're close to and they said or did something that really hurt you, how many of you will fight to the end like that? You mean you, you give up before... You, you, what I mean, fight to the end. I don't mean kill the other person. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But how many of you, you feel so hurt and so betrayed that you, you fight for a while and then you say, forget it. How many of you say forget it? And how many of you continue fighting because you are going to get it through that person's thick skull that what they said really hurt you? Yes. Huh? No. (laughs) Which one of you keep fighting because you are going to win the fight? You definitely do. Yeah, you. (laughs) She went like this, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. How many of you, after a while, give up? <laughs> but if you give up, do you hold the grudge inside? <laughs> Hopefully, you work it out at some time. But this is the reason why um, many people are estranged from their families because you don't work it out. Yeah. There's a stock. Di- there's a stock difference between what I was like before coming here uh-huh. and what I do here because it's too miserable to do what I did before here because I'm with people 24 hours. I can't fight like that like I did before because it's too painful. Before I had an opportunity to leave or have other some means to distract myself. Where here, it's constantly in my face if I try and 
pull what I did before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, here, somebody's going to go, oh, are you angry? Read this. <laughs> I don't want to read anything. I want to slug you. <laughs> yeah. Living here at the Abbey, too, you get to, you get to the point that says let it go, is that you realize that 90% of them are totally proliferations of very small miscommunications, misunderstandings, and that to just keep digging your heels in or to walk away and stew for a few weeks is like over something that isn't worth life's energy to do. So yes. there is a third option in there somewhere, which is, you know, it's yours. <laughs> yeah. It, you know? Yeah. But most of us, you know, until you meet the Dharma, yeah, except, I mean, that captain or whatever he was, he had that. He wasn't going to spend his whole life like that. But, you know, I thought, boy, that's good. But he also created a ton of negative karma. So when you're in a battle and, you know, you're going to be victorious, and, and here he's using the illustration of an actual physical wartime battle, okay, you're trying to kill people who are going to die by themselves at some point or another. Okay, so the vigorous desire to conquer those whose disturbing conceptions will naturally bring them suffering at death. So you're trying to inflict suffering on somebody who has afflictions, and because they have an untamed mind, their afflictions are going to bring them suffering at death. So here's this person who's already bound for suffering, in, in the war, going to the lower realms probably, and you're trying to hurt them some more? What, what's the use? What's the use? Okay, but who cares if it's useful or not? I'm gonna win, and I'm gonna stick up, and I'm gonna, okay. And that's, that's kind of what they teach you in the military. Because otherwise, people wouldn't do it. Yeah? They teach you to be forceful like that, and then they teach you that you're a hero if you die in the process of it. You know, so I don't want to offend anybody, you know, who's been in the military. That's certainly not uh, my purpose, but I do want to say that I think the training that you get in the military is deceptive. When you're, when you're trained to see the enemy as some, somebody inferior, close to an animal, that good, yeah. Well, you were in the Navy, so you were on a boat. <laughs> oh, you were on a ship. <laughs> she wasn't on a boat. She was on a ship. Okay. Yeah. But I've talked to other people who've been in the military, and that's how they were trained. So you were lucky. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up during the Vietnam War, and I, I saw some of the people come back from Vietnam and how they were being treated by the public. And I didn't think that was right, you know, to blame the soldiers 
for the war. Yeah, the war was not the the fault of the of the soldiers. It was the fault of the people who sat in their offices safe. And they were conscripted at that time. Oh yeah. And you had to go or you went to prison or you went to Canada. <laughs> yeah. And Canada took in all these people. Yeah. Who were then uh, blamed in America by many people for avoiding the draft. It was a very, very confusing time. Yeah. Um, okay. So, verse 38. Then, so if people don't withdraw until the day is won, even though the people they're killing are going to die anyway, um, then what need to mention that I should not be faint-hearted and slothful, even if I am caused many hundreds of sufferings, when now I strive to definitely overcome my natural enemies, these disturbing conceptions which are the constant source of my misery. Okay, so Shanti Deva is saying, okay, if other people go to that kind of extent to fight an external enemy who's going to suffer and die anyway, then what need is there to mention that I shouldn't be faint-hearted? If they're not faint-hearted in that situation, then I shouldn't be faint-hearted and slothful, you know, fighting an enemy that has no arms and no legs and that can't physically harm me. And who is that? Or what is that enemy? The uh, afflictions, the self-centeredness. So even if I'm caused many hundreds of suffering, sufferings, when uh, now I strive to definitely overcome my natural enemies, these disturbing conceptions, which are the source of my misery. So, you know, if other people are willing to go to that extent when they're fighting a physical enemy, which it is, you know, kind of useless to do from a Dharma perspective because you create so much negative karma, then shouldn't I be brave in conquering my afflictions and self-centeredness? Why should I be skittish? Why should I be, you know, cowardly and say, well, it's just a little bit of attachment. It's just a little bit of anger, you know. And I'm, it's not really revenge. I'm giving, I'm teaching them you know, and making excuses for the harmful things that we do, okay? So even if we endure hundreds of sufferings, isn't it better to to slay the enemy of the afflictions? Yeah, rather than slay external enemies. Because if you slay the enemy of the afflictions, then from your side, You have no external enemies. Yeah. Conventionally, people may still say you have enemies, you know, 
But from your side, you won't see those people as horrible, despicable people. Okay, you'll have compassion for them so they don't become enemies like how we usually think of it. Yeah, where our mind goes way out of whack. And then you think of, well, what is the the hundreds and millions of sufferings that we're going to suffer from not following our afflictions, you know, by applying the antidote. What's the greatest suffering that you experience? Yeah. Well, one of the big sufferings is keeping our mouth closed. Okay. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to keep our mouth closed, isn't it? Yeah. Those words just come out involuntarily. Check up. Remember, before the body and speech move, the mind moves. Intention karma comes before intended karma. Yeah. But how difficult it can sometimes be to rein in, you know, when we get upset, to rein in that upsetness. Yeah. Or when we really desire something so badly, to rein in our greed and our clinging and our craving, it's so difficult. Yeah? It's like your hand goes out for that extra piece of chocolate without your control. And it comes back, well, I intended just one piece of chocolate. It comes back with 10 pieces of chocolate. (laughs) And then it goes out again uncontrollably. I'm like Pinocchio, you know? I'm I'm like a puppet on the strings. And the hand goes out and reaches for what else I want. Yeah. And it's so much suffering to stop. Yeah. Especially, I mean, chocolate is one thing, okay? That should be the, the least of our problems. No, it should be the biggest of our problems, okay? But when we're conditioned by society that you've got to get uh, a certain social status, you have to earn a certain amount of money, you have to get certain recognition at your workplace or in society, yeah? And you've been inculcated with that since you were in the womb. (laughs) And, you know, and it's become a part of you. Then it's so hard to say, actually, no, I don't need to do that. I have a choice in the matter. Yeah. When you're so used to getting stressed about something and giving yourself a migraine because you're so stressed. It's really 
hard to break that habit, isn't it? <laughs> Cry with laughter. <laughs> yeah. You cry. Sometimes we got to cry with laughter because, you know, what our mind pulls on us is so funny. So this is, is something, you know, to really think about and, and realize, you know, we do have a choice. And, you know, we can change how we look at situations and what we think our purpose in life is. Okay. Yeah. When people tell us that we got a degree and then you left for the Abbey without using your degree. Yeah, how terrible that was. Oh. Right? <laughs> See what happens when you know people well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get ready for the look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your mom had a look. Yeah. Did your mom have a look? And all she had to do was look at you and you knew that you you know you were gonna get it. Or maybe it was your dad had a had, had the you know, they just have to give you the look when you're a kid and it's like Okay. So um thirty-nine. If even scars inflicted by meaningless enemies are worn upon the body like ornaments, then why is suffering a cause of harm to me while impeccably striving to fulfill the great purpose? Okay, so when people get injured in a battle, very often they, they uh, see their wounds and scars as, uh, as ornaments, as to as like a medal to prove that you fought bravely in the war and you won because you're still alive. Yeah. So people, uh, you know, gang members do this too, you know. If you're in a gang and you're fighting uh, a rival gang, if you get injured and you get scarred, yeah, it's, it's a sign of how strong and brave you were fighting the other gang. Isn't it? People wear wear their their injuries like ornaments, you know. Yeah. How did you get that? Well, I was in this war, and they were attacking, and it was like hell, and this was going on, this was going on, and you have a story to tell. Yeah. Okay. So, if even scars inflicted by meaningless enemies, in other words, people who are going to die anyway. Um, are worn like upon the body like ornaments, then why is suffering a cause of harm to me while impeccably striving to fulfill the great purpose? So the great purpose is attaining full awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. And the suffering we experience, you know, by and large is not physical. It's mostly mental to try and restrain acting out the afflictions. Uh, 
Okay, so here I am fighting a battle with my own selfishness and self-centered thought uh, and uh, self-grasping ignorance and the afflictions. Okay, and I'm not even getting any scars from it because it's not actually causing me much physical suffering. So why am I a coward in doing that? Why am I a la- you know lazy? When it comes to that, why do I make so many excuses for, for not practicing? When it's something that's going to benefit me and it's not going to harm anybody else and it's not going to send me to the hell realms because I have anger and upset and, and the intention to do harm. Yeah. And yet other people, you know, see their... Suffering is really like ornaments. So, I mean, because we, we, we want, you know, when, when you were brave and you fought through something, you kind of, it would be nice if somebody kind of recognized what you go through. So, you know, we're sitting here at the Abbey and it's like, I'm meditating. And I'm going to control it. I'm not going to. Tell that person I hate them, even though they hurt me so badly. I'm really going to keep this mouth shut. Where, where's the Where's the tape? Where's the Yeah, I need the tape. The 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 What's the gray tape called? Duct tape. Where's the duct tape? I need the duct tape. Yeah, and then finally, so you put the duct tape on, and you, after a while, you calm down. Like okay. Now, uh, I want an award. <laughs> yeah. I fought the enemy, and I won, and I didn't tell that person I hated them. So where's my award? Yeah. I deserve something now. You know? <laughs> Our mind is so incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody in the Abbey should realize how much I am sacrificing in my practice and how hard I am fighting the afflictions because I actually went and vacuumed that floor. (laughs) Yeah, I want a medal for bravery. Okay, verse 40. <laughs> Maybe I should stop. Are there questions? <laughs> yeah. This doesn't follow the line of your joke, but um, I think the best medal is the satisfaction that you can feel to know, oh, I can do this. I, yeah. I can actually control my mind. I can learn to look at things a new way. Yeah. Very satisfying. Yeah. There's a tremendous sense of inner satisfaction and, um, and self-confidence that actually I was able to manage this situation. Yeah? So I can do it. I'm not a hopeless Dharma practitioner. Now I'm only almost hopeless. <laughs> no, but you know, you do. I mean, when you actually succeed, you should give yourself a pat on the back. Yeah, 
not in the sense of being arrogant, but in the sense of, yeah, I actually succeeded, you know, in that incident to not harm. Or to, well, you know, first you rejoice that you weren't able to act physically and verbally and harm somebody. Okay. You may still be angry as all get out, but at least you rejoice that you didn't take it out on the other person. Then after that, you know, you go back to your room and you try and manage the afflictions. And then when they go down, then you get more self-confidence that, yeah, I can actually calm myself down. You know, And then after a while, you're able to calm yourself down much more quickly. You know, somebody says that and you go, okay, you know, be attentive. It's not worth getting upset about. And there's inner satisfaction. So given the vast sort of background to this mind of conscientiousness, you know, it's non-attachment, it's a mind of generosity, there's some wisdom in there. Is it the background to all the other 10 virtuous mental factors? Like, it seems like they wouldn't happen unless we're conscientious. You know I, I, mean? I don't understand your question. Is, is apply, are, you, are you asking, is applying the antidotes and, and seeing them work, the background that spurs you on to generate other virtuous qualities? Well, that part I do understand, but I'm wondering okay. if conscientiousness, that mental factor, is behind all the other 10 oh, virtuous mental factors. I see, I see. Um, I would say it has a role in it, as do integrity and consideration for others. And it'll, yeah, because, I mean, in conscientiousness, it's, it's yeah, you, you treasure your ethical conduct. And so that when you really start thinking about these mental factors, then conscientiousness increases your mindfulness and your um, introspective awareness. Yeah, and then they also increase integrity and consideration for others. And so all these, just as, you know, all these virtuous mental factors are interrelated and uh, generate each other. And in the same way, the non-virtuous ones, you know, play tag and, uh, or play relay, relay race, you know, you take it on from the previous one. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. <laughs>